Now today marks uh, week three in this four-part series that we've entitled Overcoming Spiritual Depression. And, I, and I've told you from in week one kind of how I struggled with that title, um, almost wanted to rename it Fighting for Joy in the Midst of Spiritual Depression or Fighting for Joy in the Midst of Darkness. You can find out my reasoning behind that there, but I've stuck with this title. Um, and like I said then in week one, there's so much about this topic I just don't know. There's so much that comes with the topic of depression that, that exceeds my expertise. But there's a couple things that I, I do understand and I do know. And I know that some depression is physical. Uh, some depression is psychological in nature, meaning there's a medical component to, to some depression that requires receiving help from, from trained professionals. That, that part is over my head. Um, and there's a time that I know that medication is needed under proper doctor supervision. And there's no shame in either of those. And if that's an area where you're struggling and wondering about questions in your life, an area we'll be happy to put you in touch with individuals who can help get you the help that you need there. But the second thing that I do understand about depression is that all depression is spiritual in nature. Because at its core, depression exists because sin exists. Now, as we've talked about over the past couple of weeks, sometimes our depression results because of our, our circumstances. It's, it's life happens type of stuff. Whether it's a job loss, whether it's a death, an illness, a relationship, though those type of things can definitely lead to depression. There's other times where we find ourselves in these states of just feeling depressed and in despair, and we're like, I don't even know why I feel this way, but I do. And you're like, I don't want to feel this way, but I do. And you're in this circle, in this kind of spiral of despair. And you're like, I don't want to be here, but I am. And you're trying to find your way out. Um, and you're wondering what's wrong. But there's other times where our depression, our despair, is the result of sins that we have committed in our lives, whether past or present. There's this overwhelming guilt that is in our life and an inability to forgive ourselves of, again, of past or present sin. And that, that's what we're looking at today in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was written by King David after being confronted by Nathan the prophet after David had had an affair with Bathsheba. Now, I don't want to assume that everyone is familiar with this story. Maybe you've heard of David and you've heard of Bathsheba. I mean, maybe you know some of the details, but there's a lot that plays into this story that gives us the context for Psalm 51. And what we have is David is king over Israel. And now he has sent out his, his army into battle. And David has kind of stayed behind, and he's out for a walk on top of his, his palace. And he's out walking around and looks over, and he sees a beautiful woman in another house. And she's taking a bath. Her name is Bathsheba. And he sees her, Bathsheba, the, the wife of Uriah. He, his lust begins to get the best of him. He summons her, and sleeps with her, ends up impregnating her, and, and then says, oh, no, I've got to cover this up. And he begins to do just that, or attempt to do just that. He, he goes in the process of saying, okay, got an idea. Hey, I'm going to call for Uriah. I'm going to bring him back in from battle. I'm going to appear like I'm a really nice guy. And I'm going to let him have a night with his wife, kind of come in, a, a night of reprieve from the battle, if you would say. Well, Uriah is an upstanding dude, according to the text, because he says, hey, my soldiers can't do that. They can't be with their families. I'm not going to do that either. So he does not stay with his wife that night. David's like, okay, 
plan B. I'm going to get him drunk. And then that still doesn't work. Uriah still doesn't stay the night with his wife. And so David moves on to plan C at that point in time. And David says, okay, I'm going to send Uriah to the front lines of the battle, which is ultimately he's sending Uriah to his death. I'm going to have him killed. And so ultimately that's what happens. David then takes Bathsheba to be his wife to make it look like the child is coming from honorable circumstances, thinking, okay, I'm going to hide this. I'm going to cover this up. Nobody's going to know. And, and then along comes Nathan the prophet with a word from God. And he hits David right between the eyes with the truth. And what we have ultimately with Psalm 51 is David's response to the Lord. So you see in the title of the psalm, it's just to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. We see in verse 1, David cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a, a right spirit within me. Now, we're going to just stop right there. We can just keep going in, in Psalm 51, but I'm going to be honest, that's all that we're going to have time to look at today, and, and that's even pushing it to be able to expound what we see in those first 10 verses. But in looking at those 10 verses, in looking at the psalm a, as a whole, what do we see as the overarching theme of this psalm? David's cry, David's desire for a clean heart. He, he wants freedom from this overwhelming guilt and con conviction and self-condemnation that he's experiencing over his past sin. He cannot get past it. And he's wanting freedom from that. And I know in, in a room this size, there, I know that there are many Christians and many of you maybe even here today who can feel the exact same way. So the, the question is, is how does David find this freedom? How does he find this freedom? And then subsequently, how do we find this freedom? Well, we're going to look at three things today. Just pulling three things from this text, starting with number one, we must press into the character of God. Notice what the first thing out of David's mouth is in verse one. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God. Some translations, your translation may say, be gracious to me, O God. Either way, he's asking God to withhold what he deserves and then also to provide what he doesn't deserve. He's asking for both grace and mercy throughout this psalm. And here's what I love about it. Look, look at verse 1 again. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Notice what David's not doing here. He's not basing it on his own merits. He's not saying, hey, hey God, you know, I, I've been really good. I'm a man after your own heart. I, I've done all these other good things. Will you have mercy on me now? He, he's not basing it on any of that. No, he's basing his request for mercy not on himself, but 100% upon the character of God. That's the whole focus is on the character of of God. He's basing his request completely on the fact that God is a steadfast and loving God. You know what this is really is a picture of? It's the request of a child coming before a loving father. That's what we have here. So hypothetically, let's say a child breaks a lamp. A child may even try to cover up breaking the lamp. I know that it's all hypothetical because none of this ever actually happens, right? (laughs) Child tries to cover it up. Child's doing all that he can. But then child comes to his father humbly, in tears, broken, confessing, I've broken the lamp. (laughs) If that was only the way that it worked, right? But like literally he's coming, heartbroken, I've broken the lamp. How does the father respond? How does a father, how does a loving father respond? According to his character, right? It doesn't mean that there's not going to be consequences, but he's responding according to his character, according to his steadfast love for his son. He's responding with his never-ending, never-stopping, never-fading, always-and-forever love for his son. If you're familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible, that kind of rhyme should kind of reference into your mind. I love reading that as I read to Brian at night. That never-ending, never-fading, always-and-forever love. The other night I'm reading to him, and I'm reading that out of this little children's storybook Bible, and I'm just like, yes, <laughs> thank you, Lord. Like I'm worshiping as I'm like reading to him, and I'm like, yes, thank you. Because God responds to us with mercy and grace that is stemming from his never-ending, never-fading, always-and-forever steadfast love. Which is why the child can come to the father and confess, I've broken the lamp. I've broken the lamp. That doesn't happen, or doesn't likely happen if the father has been abusive to his son. In that situation, the last thing you want to do is run to an abusive father. You want to hide. You want to run. You don't want to get beat. You don't want to be abused. Which is why for we who are Christians, it is so important for anyone, to important for us to have a healthy, biblical understanding of the character of God. We need to understand that He is not a God to be run from, but a God that we run to. We go to Him, even in our filth. I'm reminded of the story of the prodigal son. The father does what? He doesn't say, get away or do these things first. Go get yourself cleaned up. He embraces him, clothes him, celebrates and rejoices with him, meets him where he's at. It's a never-ending, never-fading, always and forever love. doesn't end. See, knowing the character of God is at the heart of overcoming the despair that comes from our guilt. 
Knowing the character of God. It's knowing that no matter what we've done or what we will do, God's steadfast love for us, for his children, will never end. And I don't know about you, but that has carried me through some nights. (laughs) That has carried me through some days of resting in God's never-ending love. But when we look about the focus of this psalm, it's not on David, is it? It's not on David's sin. The focus is on God. The focus is on the character of God. Meaning the starting place for our repentance is not with our sin. It's not with our sin. Because if we start by focusing on our sin and not on God, what's happening? We're going to get really depressed. If all we're doing is focusing on our sin, we're going to get depressed. Why? Because we're looking at our sinful self, our woeful self, and we're saying, like, kind of like Eeyore, look how sinful I am. Look how bad I am. How could God ever love me? We laugh at that, but that's the way some of us respond. It's the way some of us feel. Like, see, how could God ever love me? How? focuses on God. It doesn't take long when we focus on sin to chase the rabbit down the hole of despair. We don't want to do that. Can't do that. Don't do that. No, no. Follow David's lead and look to the character of God. Look to God. Ask him Have mercy upon me according to your steadfast love. And if you are in Christ, trust that that is exactly what has happened. He has had mercy upon you, not because of anything you've done, but because of his steadfast love for you. Oh, church, this is such good news. Now, there's one more thing that I want to look at regarding the character of God. There's many more things that we could look at here. There's one more thing I want to look at here before we move forward. And it's based upon David's request in verse 2. It says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What's David asking here? He's asking God to wipe away his sin. God, wipe it away. Make it no more. He's not, just saying have, don't have, he's not just saying have mercy on me, but he's asking him to completely expunge his guilt record. And some of you today are saying, I wish God would do that with my driving record. I wish he would just expunge it. I'm not going to name names, but it's true. But David wants God to wipe away what? His lustful thoughts. He wants him to wipe away his adulterous act. He wants him to wipe away his cover-ups. He wants him to wipe away his act of murder. He wants to wipe away all of these things and make it look like it never happened. And that's not just mercy. That's grace. That's receiving what he does not deserve. He does not deserve a clean slate. But then we have to ask, what judge in their right mind, what good judge would ever do that? Oh, you're sorry? Well, that makes a difference. Everything is expunged. Everything's gone. No worries. There's no earthly judge that's going to do that, right? Not a good judge that we want to keep on the bench. There's no justice in that. 
But that's exactly what David's asking for. He's leaning into the character of God, and he's asking God to wipe away his sin. But then we have to ask the question, how is that possible and God remain true to his character? How can he just wipe away David's sin and remain true to his character? How does he remain merciful and gracious while at the same time remaining just in dealing with sin? David's sin and our sin. Because God doesn't just pass over sin without penalty. God doesn't wipe away sin without justice. Either we're paying the penalty for our sin or someone else is. And it's not the luxury of saying, well, I don't like that dude. I'm going to put my sin on him and he's going to take my sin for me. I, I choose him. There may be times where we wish that were the case in our sinfulness, but that is not the way that it works. Why? Because even that dude has his own sin, no matter how good of a person he may be. Has his own sin. Can't, can't do that. Can't pass it off to somebody else. Which brings us to the heart of the gospel. Which gloriously reveals the character of God. Where God made alive we who were dead in our sin. Rest in that for a minute. God made alive we who were dead in our sin. Forgiving us our sin. Canceling our record of debt that stood against us was all of its legal demands. Cancel it. But then again, we come back and go, like, how did he do that and remain consistent with his character? How does he cancel all our legal demands and the debt that we have from our sin and remain true to his character? By nailing it to the cross. By nailing it to the cross. By sinless Jesus substituting his life for ours. We talked about it over and over. It's the great exchange. Jesus receives our sin and we receive the righteousness of Christ, which brings us to the true character of God and the oft-memorized and recited verse of John three sixteen: For God so loved the world, sinful, broken, fallen people of this world, that he gave his only son, that whoever no matter how filthy you are, no matter what you've done, whoever believes in him will not perish, but receive eternal life. Church, you find yourself in despair over guilt of present or past sin. Press into the character of God. Press into his, that steadfast, never-ending, never-stopping, never-fading, always-in-forever love. Press into that love. Let it wash over you and comfort you. He is always forgiving God to those who believe. Number two, we must own and confess our sin. Now, we think back to David's story. What was his initial response to his sin? He tried to cover it up, tried to hide from it. The same thing we see with Adam and Eve in the garden, telling us this isn't anything new. What David did isn't new. What we do isn't new. We see the same thing all the way back in the garden. They were naked and, and unashamed until the moment where they were naked and ashamed. And then what did they do? They went and tried to hide. 
try to create coverings from, for themselves, try to hide in the bushes. And what do they find out? Can't do that. You can't hide from God and you, you can't hide. We can't hide from our guilt. We can't hide from our guilt. We know that all too well, don't we? So David says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. See, David tried everything he could to cover up his sin. Tried to hide it, tried to wipe it away, to make it like it never happened. But what remained for David? His guilt. His guilt was there. He knows he has sinned, and it's not just that he knows he sinned. He says, my sin is ever before me. It's the moment when like, no one else might know your sin, but you do. No one now knows who you were when, but you do. And you have these thoughts. You're, you've tried to live this front and this life like it's okay, but inside... Your sin is ever before you. It's there. It's haunting you. You've even tried to convince yourself that it's not that big of a deal. No one has to know this. But the reality is it is a big deal. It is a very big deal. And your guilt won't go away because the Holy Spirit is telling you that it is a big deal. So on that note, we've got to be thankful that we do experience guilt rightly because it's what the Holy Spirit is using to tell us that something is not right with our relationship with God. Something's not right here. Either you're not resting in Him, or you're not trusting in Him, or you don't know Him. There, there's so many factors that come in, and here's why it's a big deal. Look at verse 4, what David says. He goes, against you, and you only have I sinned. Who's he referring to here? God. Yes, David had sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, David had sinned against Uriah. But ultimately, it was God who he sinned against. It was God's law that he broke. And it's God's judgment that he deserved. It's why it's God to whom he cries out for mercy. David saying and confessing in 2 Samuel, I have sinned against the Lord. Kind of just a side note of application here. When, when Bryant will, will sin and do something uh, that breaks one of our rules, we take that moment to, to, to teach him the gospel the best that we can. And we understand, yes, you have sinned against daddy. Yes, you have sinned against mommy. You have not honored us and done what we have asked you to do. But ultimately, you have sinned against God. And then it's a way for us, even in his tender age, to continue to point him to the truth of the gospel. It's not that we're wanting him to be a good person. We're wanting him to know that he is in sinner in, in need of mercy from God. Because it's not just this set of sins that David is confessing here. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Somebody reads this and be like, man, that's a bad way to talk about your mom. Well, that's not what he's referring to here. His mom could have said the same thing about her mom. Why? Because what David is doing here is an all-out confession of sin. Confessing that at the core of who he is, he is a sinner. Notice he's not trying to defend himself here. He's not trying to vindicate himself. Not trying to justify his actions. Not trying to make himself look like a good dude. 
He's laying it all on the table. He said, I am a sinner. Been holding on to it, hiding it, trying to put on the front, but no more. He's like, I am a sinner, Lord, and I need your mercy. I need mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And you know what that is? It's liberating. If we're being honest, we're scared to death to confess our sin. Scared to death to confess our sin because of you know, earthly consequences of what somebody might think of us. Scared of what our spouse may think of us. Scared to death of what we'll think of ourselves. We're trying to hide it. We're even scared of what God might think, even though we, like, we know he knows everything, but in that sense, we want to kind of hide it. But if we, are, if we are really pressing into the true character of God, here's the reality. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the truth of the gospel. That's the character of God. He is faithful to forgive the unjust and make us just, to make the unrighteous righteous. He does that. Now, if we say we have no sin, what does that make us? A liar. We're all, we all have sin. But if we confess our sin, true repentance follows. And what, what's God's promise? He will forgive us. He is faithful and just to forgive. So if you are in Christ, if you are trusting him as your only hope in life and in death, understand this, church. If you are trusting Christ as your only hope in life and in death, you have been forgiven. Press into that. When all the enemy around you is pointing, wanting to say something else and have you believe something else, press into that. You have been forgiven. You are loved. Press into that. You are loved even when you have difficulty loving yourself. You are loved with the steadfast love of the one who created you. You have received mercy. You have received grace. Press into that. Press into the character of God. And if you are not in Christ, you are not a Christian, repent and believe in this God. Call out for mercy from his steadfast and abundant love. Press into the character of God. But back to those of us who, we who are in Christ. Number three, we must remember who we are in Christ. And this is our final point, and for good reason. Because this is where I think Christians have the most trouble. And I think that because I know that that is the case for me. To, to remember who I am in Christ. So look with me at verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Who's the you here? It's God. And God does what? He delights, he takes great pleasure in, in what? In the truth of the inward being. And David is saying all this following his confession of sin. Again, he's pressing into the character of, of God. A God who delights in truth of our inward being. Now, what does that mean? 
Like, what are we talking about inward being? Like, what is that? It's that place in our, in our hearts, in our lives, that we're attempting to lock away and hide from God. It's like, okay, you can have part, but you can't have whole. You can have this much, God, but you can't have everything. You know, when you have someone over to your home, what do you, what do you say, typically? Hey, welcome. Make yourself at home, right? Do we really mean that? No. Some of you, yeah. Like, we don't really mean that. Like, make yourself at home. It's make yourself at home with limitations. Like, I don't want somebody coming home and saying, yeah, go upstairs, pull back the covers, take a nap in my bed, and use my toothbrush, use my soap. That's not what we're saying. It's limitations. I was an intern in, in college at a church in, um, in Orlando, Florida. And I was staying at a host home for a couple months, which is always awkward. Um, but I'm staying at their home, and, and they, they were going away for like a weekend. This is like the start of the summer. And they said, okay, hey, make yourself at home. The fridge is full. Anything you want, have at it. And I'm like, okay, night comes. I open up the fridge. And I'm like, they've got ribs. <laughs> Sweet. And I look outside, and he's got a, little, uh, a grill, a smoker outside. I'm like, awesome. And we go outside. I'm like, I call up the other interns. I'm like, come on over. We're having ribs tonight. And we start smoking the ribs, and we're just having a good old time watching football and watching you know, everything that's going on. Or I don't know, It's summertime, so it's not football. Whatever sport was on, we're watching it, and we're just having a good time. And, and then we put all the dishes in the sink, and we're like, we'll get to that tomorrow because we're college guys, and they're just making ourselves at home, right? And then they come home early. And I never hear it from her, but I hear it from her, uh, like mama of the house. I hear it indirectly through the youth pastor who heard it from the dad, um, from me, it was, from her. It, it was a spot of, that's not how you make yourself at home. It was, yes, you are to make yourself at home, but with limitations, Make yourself at home in this area that we designate to you and nothing else. So after that, he was the owner of a Chick-fil-A, and he gave me some Chick-fil-A coupons. He said, these are your meals for the rest of the summer. That's it. (laughs) Which I'm like, cool, Chick-fil-A for the summer. (laughs) But it's this whole idea when we say make yourself at home, it's with limitations and don't stay too long while you're at it, right? So when, when David says God delights in truth, in the inward being, he's saying, hey, no more secrets, God. No more hiding. No more cover-ups. It's all yours, God. Every part of my life is yours. Make yourself at home. And this is coming from a believer. Make yourself at home. And what happens when God makes himself at home in our lives? He starts opening doors and closets, and drawers, and cleaning out the junk. So here's the picture. You think your house is clean because you got company coming over, right? And we all know what company clean looks like, right? Like the dust is off the coffee ta- table, everything is kind of put away where you think that they might be and where they might go, and, and, and then but there's that drawer and there's that closet and there's that room that says, hey, shut that door, close that drawer. Don't, don't open those, right? In the last second, even the doorbell rings, tossing it in, got to hide this. We all know what it's like. 
Why are we that way? Because we've got lots of junk piled up inside. We've got a mess in this room where we don't want anybody seeing. We've got a drawer that we can barely open because there's so much junk in it. We have all of these different things that we're trying to hide. And God is saying, hey, I want that room as well. And I want that drawer. And I want that closet. I want it all. I want every bit of it. And you know what? There's absolutely nothing comfortable about that. Nothing. There's nothing comfortable about opening up the the hidden secret doors of your heart and sharing the junk and confessing your sin. But it's liberating when we are able to press in to the character of God. Why? Because God doesn't come into our life to condemn, but to redeem. He doesn't come in and say, hey, look how horrible that drawer is. Look how bad that messy that room is. He says, here, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna clean it for you. I'm gonna clean up the junk. I'm going to do this. To make our sin-stained, junk-filled lives whiter than snow. That's verse 7. He blots out our iniquities. That's verse 9. And he creates a new heart along with a new right spirit within us. That's verse 10. And if you are a Christian... If Jesus Christ is your only hope in life and in death, that is who you are in Christ. Do not let the enemy tell you otherwise. That is who you are as a child of God. That is your identity right now. But here's the thing about the word create. Sometimes it's used to describe an instantaneous act. We see it in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God speaks and creation comes into existence. And sometimes it's used to describe a sustained process. Both are on display in David's prayer here. Both are are, are on display in the life of a follower of Christ. We are a new creation. Our sins have been blotted out. We have been made whiter than snow. We have received mercy, all instantaneous and forever but we are also continually in the process of becoming more like Christ. And sometimes that process doesn't happen as fast as we would like. And it doesn't happen as easy as we would like. But it also means that the further that we push into knowing and believing the character of God, the more little rooms and drawers and closets in our life we'll find that need cleaning. And we'll be reminded even more of of God's never-ending, never-fading, always and forever love. So church this morning, no matter where you're at on this spectrum, press into the character of God and let him be your refuge and strength, your, your very present help in trouble. You need to talk with someone about what this looks like in your life. Don't hesitate to ask for help. Let the church be the church. For some weird satanic reason, 
We have bought into the lie that we have to have it all together as, as a church. Guess what? We don't. This is the place where it is okay to be you. This is the place where it's okay to not have it all together. It's the place where we come together and we realize we don't, but we're looking to the God who does. We're looking to his steadfast, never-ending, always and forever love. And we're trusting that even when we can trust nothing else around us. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. (laughs) The Bible tells me so. So church, whether you're going to turn to the person next to you, whether you're going to talk to a friend in your small group, whether you're going to talk to one of the pastors or the elders, if you're, if you're wrestling with, with unrepentance in your life or guilt that you're having trouble overcome, you're not in this alone. Like reach out to someone. Lock arms. And realize you are not alone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you. We thank you just over and over and over again for the truth of, of your word. For your never ending, never fading, always and forever love. It's unbelievable to me how you can love sinners such as me, love sinners such as us. Lord, but we thank you and we rest in these promises. And Lord, I pray specifically for Harvest Point Community Church today. I pray for everyone who's gathered here today, no matter where they're at, whether they're wrestling with present sin, past sin, one day they're going to be in that spot when they're in in those things. Lord, I pray they'll rest in the truths that are found in your word. Just as we're going to look at next week, God, you are our refuge in strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, who shall we fear? Lord, thank you for Christ. And just as we're going to recognize and we're going to confess as we sing this song, our hope is founded only in Christ. All we have is Christ. And let that be our life anthem. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and continue in worship.